0: Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it.
1: 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense
0: of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? All perfectionism is, is unnecessary. Oh, I can see, I can see, which is so brilliant. You know, like... That's important. I didn't realize. Like, oh my god, I can see you. Yeah, and my glasses are the same glasses that Jeffrey Dahmer has. Like, and that wasn't an accident. I was gonna say Dwight Schrute. Very similar. A similar they look style. Really cute on you. Thank you. And I got um, blue blocker and the anti glare, so like you can't straight up just see the screens in my eyeballs. You know, that's um, good. I can see is the most important thing. Like, I realized I, I was living like this. <laughs>
1: did you have a headache all the
0: time yeah and the saddest thing happened at the at the doctor's office i mean sorry i'm rustling okay the saddest Mm, thing happened that wasn't really sad but so my doctor my ophthalmologist was this lovely woman she looked like she was about 12 like literally she was like Mm -hmm. the teeniest loveliest woman anyway she was like have you had headaches your whole life i'm like yeah migraines and she goes and I said, and she made this face. You can't, our, our listeners can't see. And I said, what? She goes, your parents. She made the yikes face. She said, your parents should have taken it. You've been, you've been farsighted for your whole life. Oh my, Nadja, you're kidding me. And did you ever go to the eye doctor? And I said, no, they always just relied on the school to see if I could see the blackboard and I can see far. I can't see close. Yeah, you're
1: farsighted. So she said,
0: those migraines may have been like 50%, gla- you just needed glasses. Are you enraged? You know, it's been a lot of rage lately and a lot of sadness. I've been doing a lot of deep work in therapy and this sadness to the neglect, uh, to the level of neglect that I now am realizing that I experienced is, is quite something like I was like, what? And she goes, she goes, how old are you? And I said, 46. And she goes, when did this, I said, I started having migraines at five. She goes, and they never took you to the eye doctor? And she's like, that is so sad. She was like, she could tell in her face, she was like, oh, that's abusive. Like, she was like, and what did they give you for your headaches? I'm like, nothing, because ibuprofen didn't work. She goes, well, of course it's not going to work if it's an eye problem. It's also not going to work. Ibuprofen is not going to help you. Wait, I, okay,
1: <laughs> I, 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 I'm not, I, I really don't mean to make, make this about me, but when you're telling me this story, I'm imagining how I would feel as you. Mm-hmm. And I asked you if you felt rage, but then I realized the thing that I would be feeling is embarrassed.
0: Like it was my
1: fault I was neglected. Okay, you didn't have that feeling. No,
0: I don't have that feeling that it was my fault I was neglected. I have the feeling of, oh, these, like it is rage. And it's like, oh, they should have probably been chastised, if not given like some kind of ticket. You know, like a ticket yeah. from the police saying. Oh, like, girl,
1: we need we need to have tickets for parents. I I, I back that girl. for myself. I'd love to be fined. I'd love for somebody to say, "Oh, you sent in Oreos with lunch." That's a fine. That's a that's just like a three dollar fine. But still, don't don't send in Oreos with lunch. I mean, I don't ever do that because I don't send in lunch because I pay for lunch. Right. But the idea being, we we need. I guess the reason I'm being cheeky, but I guess the reason I'm saying is like. Everybody needs to be held accountable. And sometimes we need external means of being held accountable.
0: Yeah. Someone, you know, I was talking to my therapist and, and she, I really, the feeling is like someone should have stepped in and said, okay, this family needs help. Like you, you yeah. need help. Like you, but here's the thing. Like we looked so good from the outside in so many ways. We had an immigrant success story, right? We had, um, a father who wasn't abusive. We had a, in, in physically abusive in any way or sexually, we had a mom who, you know, we had good looking, um, you know, my sister was like really, really above average in all ways. So like, it's so hard. And I know, and I think this is what made the movie, the show addressed. It's so hard when a package looks a certain way for us, same with serial killers, for us to wrap our head around the fact that something very bad is going on. And we don't want to believe it because it looked so pretty or, or, or it didn't look ugly. Let's just say that. And it's a, it's, it's that is the the feeling that I've had in therapy recently is just that I just long for someone rationally, a rational human being to have stepped in and said, "Okay, this family needs help. Like, how can we help this family? Like, she's not getting eyeglasses, whether it's you know a money thing or a or a not wanting to spend the money, or if it's it's a, just a, a like." An oversight, overwhelm. My mom was totally overwhelmed when my father was underperforming. Like, let's get in there and really try to make a care plan. Or like let's get in there. We needed a care, we needed a case manager, you know? And I think most families do need some kind of case management in turn, even if it's light, you know. All families do. Do they have that in
1: countries where they have socialized medicine? I bet not. I bet that's that's a bridge too far, but I mean, a school counselor, I guess, theoretically is supposed to do that. But a school counselor has literally hundreds of students right. in
0: there. And they're not going to worry about a kid that looks well-fed, isn't, doesn't have bruises, and just literally has headaches. Like, that's not a real problem. But it, it,
1: another you know, example of where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like, imagine, literally, I don't mean to be, uh, whatever, overblown about it, but imagine how different your life might've been. Yeah.
0: I mean, I was, I had migraines from five years old. I was barfing and like no one. And I actually didn't actually go to the doctor for them. Cause I think my mom was like, no, that's not a real problem. Like I never went to the doctor until I was 21 for them. And then they did a brain scan and they, they said, no, your brain is fine. And then they just said it's hormones, which they always say to women. And no one ever said it. Maybe you're, you need glasses. This is crazy. It's crazy to me. So I'm I'm grateful I have them. They're like they're like changing my my world in terms of yeah. I mean, what the fuck? And I chose on purpose to get like the same thing Jeffrey Dahmer has because I, it really
1: works for you. It really you. works you. for I don't know, maybe it's having to do with the shape of your face, but it looks you look thank stunning. You, you thank look you. a gorgeous serial killer. Thank you. How are you? Tell me things. Okay, I'm pretty good. It's very sunny today, which even though it's 11 degrees, it's sunny. sunny. It's we'll sunny. take it. We'll take I it. I can do anything in sunshine. Yep. I literally could move mountains if it's yep. sunny outside. The minute there's a cloud, I'm like, Ugh, right. I guess I'll just stay in my bed and watch TV. Right. So I'm doing okay today. Pretty good today. I realized I was re-listening to the skiing uh, story that's in the episode that airs today. And I forgot to tell you kind of the funniest slash most pathetic part of it. 10 minutes into the, uh, 15 minutes into the ski lesson, I'm sweating,
0: right? Because of course, skiing is fucking hard and you're bundled up. Okay. And you're
1: bundled up and it wasn't really that cold. So I was sweating. And then I remembered that I it was around 3 p.m. and I realized I hadn't eaten because I was really nervous about doing the lesson. And you know, when you get past that point of hunger where you start to feel nauseous. Yeah. I got there and then I did that thing that I don't think I've done since I was in my twenties and drank too much. Um, where you feel like you're going to throw up yep. right there in front of a bunch yep. of people.
0: You just swallow and it. I...
1: <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I went. <laughs> yep. I'm just, I was just imagining, I don't know if anybody clocked me. I don't think they did. Cause of course everybody's always just paying attention to themselves and what they're doing. But Dude, it also brilliant. proves why it is, it, it, everything is psychological and maybe even especially like a difficult physical thing. Yes. Like if you're a person who wasn't raised doing difficult physical things, like I can take on a difficult emotional challenge, right? N- nothing, no, no, no big deal. I can take on a an, a mental challenge. In fact, I really love mental challenges, but a physical challenge gets me in my feelings every yes. single time. So that's that. The other thing is I um, had an interpersonal conflict oh, this weekend with somebody that I'm estranged from, essentially. And I'm really proud of how I handled myself.
0: Yay! Let's hear how you handled yourself.
1: I said to this person, well, I start, we have a estranged relationship that used to be personal and professional. Great. So I reached out to this person because I realized I had some of their stuff uh-huh. that, I, that I wanted to return. Right. And I had written this email just saying, Hey, I have these things. Let me know where you want me to drop them off. And he wrote back saying, uh, Oh, I, let me, I'll, I'll swing by. I'd love to see you, which threw me for a loop because I, we haven't talked in like oh,
0: 18 months. So wow. That's a long time. Yeah. A couple months.
1: So, I wrote back a lie and I said, my kids are sick. I don't think you should come over. And then I I decided that not because he deserved anything, but because that was betraying my own integrity.
0: I I totally, yep.
1: And robbing me of the opportunity to tell somebody the way in which they hurt me. And so I wrote back and I said, I lied to you. my kids are not sick. I didn't want to see you. Gina, that is brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. And then and then I also avoided something that I typically do, which is then go into an overlong, yeah. overly detailed, let me tell you my entire whatever, whatever, for five pages. I had written that, and then I stopped myself from sending it. And I just said, I didn't want to see you because, and I just gave like three main reasons, and that was it. And, you know, it's just... People are so fascinating. His response to me was with zero acknowledgement for what I had said, except to say he disagreed. And just a basic thing of like, if you're, if somebody, oh, and then he, call, he called me a treasured friend, which I thought, oh, really? I'm your treasured friend that you haven't right. reached out to? Right.
0: That doesn't fit, but okay. <laughs> it doesn't
1: fit. And I, it really, truly, the inability. And by the way, um, let me just preface this all to say, I see it so clearly because I have done this me, for yes, the majority me of my I, life.
0: I, I relate to both parts of this. Uh-huh. Uh huh.
1: You know, somebody tells me that they're hurt by me, and I say, oh, "I'm hurt by you, right?" And let me tell you why you shouldn't be hurt by me. Yes. And let me tell you all the things I've done for you. Yeah. That's what he did to me. Oh wow. And I thought, and I, and then for a third time, I avoided the temptation to say your response is exactly why we don't have a friendship. And right. if you think that this is a treasured friendship, I encourage you to reevaluate your yes. relationships right. in your life. Right. I didn't do that. I just, I just let it die and it's okay. Cause I don't feel torn up about it. And I feel I represented myself and exactly my new guiding thing is, Let's imagine that this thing I'm going to write to this person gets published on
0: Twitter. Uh-huh. How do I feel about I think it? That's so great. I think right? that that's is a good test. A good North Star of like, if this comes out, I always say to like, okay, if I run into this person at a party, how am I going to feel about the last time we interacted, whether it's in writing or and most of my things I would feel terrible about. So I stopped, I trying to do things differently, but I think that's so such a good. And also look, the thing about the truth is a personal truth is that it's done then like it, it, it it's, exists in the world as a personal truth. They don't have to agree. And clearly the person did not agree with you about the content, like the content of it. You told the truth, your truth. Like at the end of the day, that's the fucking ultimate thing we can do. That's it. And I
1: realized that a lot of the time that I've spent in my life being upset about things that interpersonal one, one thing that I will say is true when the other person says, here are all the ways you've hurt me um, is what I typically do is have a bunch of unexpressed emotions that then I'm mad that the person didn't respond to the Absolutely. emotions or the desires Absolutely. I never expressed in the first place. Right. So it's completely unfair the way I, I, I fight dirty in a way, you know, because, and I've, and I've said this before, but so many of my relationships used to end w- when I just couldn't take it anymore. And then I said to the person, like, I cannot be with you. And, and they've always been really surprised. And this person was really surprised too. Um, but I, I can honestly say, They shouldn't have been surprised. And I said the truth about it. And because I said the truth about it, I didn't then spend the next any time after that rereading and getting getting angry all over again. I just said, okay, so I laid it all out. Right. And they laid it all out. And here we are. And we don't agree. And that's fine. And the world will keep
0: spinning. And there's nothing. um it's like there's no like unfinished business. like that's yeah. it, on your part. like if they have some unfinished business in their brain, they're gonna have to work that out. But like if we have the unfinished business settled within ourselves, I feel like I can move forward and not be a toxic, mess inside like i am which trying- is
1: your only job your only job in life is to not be toxic to yourself or other right. people
0: right and because that'll kill you like i am so convinced that you know my i'm uh, speaking for myself and speaking for and watching my mother like that shit, that unresolved shit, the stuff we make up in our head or the real stuff leads to bad news bad news and i'm not saying people deserve it and i'm not saying i deserve it or my mom deserved it but i'm just saying this is my firm belief is that not telling the truth to ourselves and not cleaning up our side of the street really leads me uh, when I don't do that, I get sick And, Mm and it can be in numerous ways. And, 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 you know, and the tricky part is like some of the shit that we, that we, some of it, it starts out when we're little as not our fault. Right. So, then it switches to being our responsibility at some point. I don't know where the line is, but it stops being, okay, well, you were given this sort of shitty hand in life and you're making do with what you received. And so it's not really your fault. And I would argue it's not really our quote fault ever, but when is it? it switches to being like, yeah, this is my responsibility to clean up my side of the street. Even though my parents neglected me, even though I never had glasses, like I'm not going to like, yeah. Right. It becomes a thing of like, now it's my job. Now it's my job. And I think it's only done through some kind of support or therapy where you can switch from, Oh, now I've processed it. I figured out what went wrong. Right. And how it went wrong. And now it's like, what am I going to do about it?
1: Mm-hmm. I love it. This therapist sounds great. So what's the, what's the, what are you, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear aside from going to therapy, which is a very practical thing to do. What are the other practical ways you can approach your own
0: healing? Oh, that's really good. Um, I feel like, so my cousin Dahlia um, always says, just get back on your bullshit. Which yeah. means, which is like what people talk about, which means like seriously basic ass shit that I think in this pandemic we've come to see is not basic ass shit. Like water, sleep, vitamins, and exercise, exor- moving the body, moving yeah, mm-hmm. the body, like people used to always say right like move your body you have to move and i used to think it was the stupidest thing i ever heard in my life i was like this is something skinny people say to shame fat people move your body make sure you're moving Fuck you but it's true it doesn't even matter what size you are you got to move if you can if you can't move one part move the other part but move something right it just, it's for like psychic reasons and for emotional, physical reasons to move. The energy is really important. And I feel like those things are the things that I now do, even if it's just, you know, and that's one thing that's great about getting a pet is that you kind of have to move, you know, and
1: yes yeah
0: you just do. So what about you? What other things do you do? What do you do?
1: I, I would agree with the aforementioned things. And, um, I think actually. As it turns out, writing, writing things down helps because I, a couple of things, I don't have a great memory. So sometimes I don't remember that I already worked through something.
0: Ah,
1: (laughs) so I've started writing things down. And also because writing it down is kind of an incontrovertible way of acknowledging that something happened. I mean, for people who have a bunch of unacknowledged nonsense in their history and are in this perpetual state of being victimized by the things that happen to them, that they don't feel anybody ever validated. Yes. Good news is only you ever have to validate it. Oh, right. And and if it doesn't work for you to say it out loud or say it to a loved one to validate it, it might work for you to write it down.
0: Hey, let me run this by you. Okay.
1: Okay. Did you see? Don't look up. No. Okay, and you're not watching American stuff these days, so no, that no. Makes sense. I, well,
0: I watched Cobra Kai. That's very American, and I watched. Uh, but no, okay. But every okay. So Don't Look Up is one of those things that's like. Speaking of hot button, people either love it or hate it. What about you?
1: Yes. Okay. Well. Adam McKay is my personal lord and savior. I think he is the greatest. I have watched the movie The Big Short probably 60 times. Okay. Um and the reason he's so great for me is in the example of that movie The Big Short, he takes a complicated thing that I never understood and he makes it easy to understand and tells a great story along the way. It's not that it's a perfect movie. There's a yeah, there's a lot about it that I actually don't like or not a lot there are some things about it which what I actually don't like but he has this pastiche style of storytelling that is it's equal parts like informative educational funny scary wow. sad it, it's the whole enchilada which is that's my thing that's yeah. what I really love I love something that's not afraid to be all things however and I and I didn't actually finish watching don't look up. I, I got interrupted, so maybe I'll feel differently after I've seen the ending of it. And I st- and I like it, and I think it's a great concept, and I think he's doing all of the things that I love him for. However, I did have the thought: Is he becoming Michael Moore? You know, because I was all on board with Michael Moore when uh, Bowling for Columbine yeah. came out. I just thought he was such a genius. And as time went on, I'm like, oh, he's cuckoo. Like, he's oh, cuckoo. He's conspiracy theory. Yes. He's presenting a, what seems like a fact without enough context to really oh, understand the well, meaning. Right. I'm not quite saying that Adam McKay is doing that, but, it, you know, when, when people, I think, achieve success in telling their thing. Okay, here's an example. Somebody will become famous for one day on Twitter because something that they said goes viral. Right. And inevitably they get a bunch of followers and usually what happens is that person goes, wow, that blew up. Okay. Well, and then they give their elevator pitch about who they are and check out my website and here's my, you know, web series, whatever, which is, I understand it. But if when I am the person who follows that person and they do that, then I, and then I unfollow them. Because I think, okay, now you drink your own Kool-Aid. See, it was cool when you didn't know you were saying something uh-huh, cool, uh-huh. but now you know you're saying something cool, uh-huh. and your knowledge of it makes you uninteresting to me now.
0: Well, they're trying to right it, it. It goes too far, and they be they you. You're right. They drink their own Kool-Aid, and they're trying to sell themselves. Then,
1: yes, they become I a product. Wondered, I feel a little worried that if if Adam McKay is doing that because he's had so much success and he split from Will Ferrell. I believe this is the first, um, or I don't know if they split, but like, they're not. No, they split.
0: There's like a whole... They got in a big. Is there thing. a drama to there it? There is a drama to it. Apparently, do you like, know what it is? Not, not really. But there was an article like saying where Adam McKay literally was like, "I was an asshole. I did bad things," and Will left.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. okay, that that tracks. I would say because. I've heard him in interviews. I mean, yeah, he does not seem like a person I would want to be friends with, yeah,
0: yeah, i mean even though
1: even though I called him my lord and savior, i I was being cheeky, but I just really like his i I really like his style, yeah, of, of filmmaking um but yeah i and it's too bad in the same way as Michael Moore, because if you take away all of the whatever yeah. whatever, like the message is still important. Yeah. Like it's a movie about a comet. It's a fictional movie about a comet, but it's an allegory for climate change. And it's such an important, I did, I worked on a play. No, I didn't work on it. I I was close to some people who were working on a play that, that was an allegory for climate change. And that is how, that is the effective way to get across these really difficult messages to people is through a really entertaining story. You know, because if you're, if you're going to beat them over the head with, Ah, you should stop eating meat and recycling is, is, is not, not enough. And people are like, "Eh, I don't want to be lectured to, but you make a great movie or you make a great piece of art yeah and people make that connection on their own. Uh, That's what causes them to change. So anyway, so I was just curious, did you see any of his other, did you see the big short? Did you see Vice? Oh, and Vice was also really good. Okay, I want to
0: see. I don't know why I'm. I'm like, I don't know why I never saw. I heard the big short was brilliant.
1: So uh, it's so good.
0: Is it about the mortgage
1: crisis? Okay. Yes, it's all about the subprime mortgage crisis, and it's all true. I mean, they fictionalize certain things, but um, and they say that.
0: But yeah. Anyway, check it out. So. That was my thing. You got anything to run by me? Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, I'm like a lot of people. I got really obsessed with Cobra Kai and it wasn't interesting. Uh, A small child got me interested into it, that it was not alive when, uh, you know, my friend's daughter was not alive when we were obviously alive in the 80s. But um it's really fi- filling this hole for people, Cobra Kai. It started out as a joke like they weren't making a show and they put it on YouTube and then it got all this you know hype and stuff like that and it's look, it's three white dudes that made it. it's not there's there's nothing um nothing progressive about the any <laughs> of it um, there's nothing but why is it filling this hole it's so fascinating it's it's simple it's not it, i think we love nostalgia but it's more than that because a whole new generation is obsessed with it so it's not even just like it's a bunch of us sitting around watching it a lot of kids are watching it it's it's so crazy it's about karate in the valley what is happening? okay well i
1: i haven't seen it but I've, obviously i saw the original yeah uh, movies could it be that we're really thirsty for the the observable villain, the known villain, uh, that, we're, that it's just a very straightforward competition uh, of, like, who's stronger than who? Because I think the thing that causes all the ennui in the world is unknown, uh, unseeable forces that are working against you I think and you don't right. want to fight them
0: because it's like really clear in cobra kai who the villain is like in every scene so there is no virus there is no right there is no um like social you know they, they they the the shows have messages, but they're it's very obvious, everything is a very obvious, and the characters are very uh no nuanced. see that doesn't surprise me at
1: all because one of the the trends in art over the last, I don't know, 50 years has been increasingly more to make things ambiguous and to leave things in the mind of like, I'm not going to tell you what the answer is, you decide, right? right? And I put myself in the category of writers and directors, people who like to do that, who like to leave it up for the person's interpretation, which is fine. But sometimes people just want an answer. What is it? How am I supposed to feel? And I think you said that to me when we were talking about documentaries. Was that what it was? You were talking to me about something, and you said, "I just want to know what the point yes, of view." Yes, it was,
0: it was, a, it was um, Wild Wild Country. I think. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. The documentary. Yeah, you just want to know, like, what's... like, who is good and who is bad, and who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing. And that doesn't exist in documentaries. I mean, it shouldn't because that's not what a documentary's job is, I don't think. But I don't know. I'm no expert. But I do think you're right. And Cobra Kai, there is no question. I mean, even, even when the dojos, which are like like you know, stand-ins for the political parties or whatever, even when they, quote, disagree or there's ambiguous stuff, you you know ultimately who's evil and who's good at heart. And and who you're rooting for, like mm-hmm. it is, it, it, and then yeah, and, and also like the guy Ralph Macchio, you know, whatever he's fine, but what he's stiff as a he he, he acts like he's has a coat <laughs> hanger in his back, right? But but Billy William Zabka, who plays Johnny, is like salt of the earth but the fucking best actor I have seen in a long time. I cannot get over it. I'm like, this dude should fucking be teaching actor studio classes. Take over for James Lipton. He's so simple. And so, and and so, um, but doesn't telegraph like he's not overacting. He's like found this middle ground of like you. I totally believe him. And. You don't like him very much, but you also learned why he's doing what he's doing, and that makes you love him. You may not like him, but you love him. Anyway, the guy hasn't been around. like He stopped acting for like 20 years and was a filmmaker, so maybe being behind the camera. Oh, this is
1: the guy who played the original. Yes, they're all
0: original people. Oh, you're
1: kidding me. I didn't know that. Dude,
0: William Zabka is Johnny from 1980-whatever. And now he's playing Johnny as an adult and he's fucking brilliant. And like- what's he been up to? What's he been doing? Okay. So he left acting right after the karate kid. I believe. I don't know. My other, my friend is getting like really obsessed with it. So she's like in the fandom world. I don't know. But, he he then started directing and producing so I think being behind the camera for so long he like learned what fucking good acting is and so I was like, oh my god he's so much better than anyone else on that show the kids the – any he, he is wow. it's uh, he deserves uh, like Emmy's Oscar whatever give it to him and he also there is an air about him like he fucking doesn't care if he's acting like he he yes.
1: That's the most attractive thing. When somebody is not hungry or thirsty at so you all, don't agree he's with like, them in he, any way. He
0: literally, the way he acts and says the lines and stuff, it is as if it's just another day. And like he he could just assume work at the Home Depot. Like literally, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my God, he's so authentic. But God bless. Sh- yeah. So anyway, I, I, anyone out there, that's, so I guess what I wanted to run by you was like, do do you think that, is that it? Like, and you pretty much said it, is that we're hungry to know who's good and who's bad in this world right now?
2: Yeah,
1: I think so. Because the other thing that I consumed recently is this book. Um, <clears throat> it's called My Friend Anna. Oh. And I, I had never heard the story before. It's about a woman who was uh, purporting to be a German heiress and, uh she was a con you know a con oh. artist um yeah so the person who wrote the book starts with this story about going on a trip to Morocco yep. that was supposedly being paid for by her friend Anna
0: oh yeah this is coming back to me I've heard of this we'll keep
1: going and Every time it comes time to pay the check, it's something with her credit card or trust fund. They has to call her bankers and whatever in Switzerland. And anyway, she has no money. She has no trust fund. She's not an heiress at all. Uh, So so the the person who wrote the book did get stuck with a... For a while, she got stuck with like a $60,000 American Express bill. And she was just a... Like young a- person <laughs> working at Vanity right. Fair as a photographyist, whatever. Not an intern, but like a low-level job. Yeah. And yet, I'm like, really, you wrote a whole book about this? <laughs> you know, like, okay, if, I'm not saying this wasn't a bad thing, but this thing to you was so bad that you had to write a book at. I mean, at the end, like American Express, they forgave it, and this girl went to jail, and
0: yeah, it's, it's sort
1: of like... you know. I'm what, like, what is, what's the bar for telling a story?
0: Well, the other thing that comes to mind is like, for me as a writer, is also like, this shit gets bought? What the fuck? They published this shit? Exactly.
1: Is she a white lady? Exactly. Of course she is. And and she narr- it's an audiobook, and she narrates it. <clears> or <throat> just like, yeah, the it's, wh- yeah, yeah, she's whining kind of, in, oh. and I just think like, man okay, maybe this is your right to make this money back because you got this, you know, this has been a difficult thing for you. But like, do we really need your voice right now? I don't, I think no. the answer is no. No,
0: no. You could have made a blog about it and called it a day or like, uh, or maybe there's a Vanity Fair article. It sounds like something that would be really perfect. Oh yeah, there was it.
1: And of course, in the epilogue, I guess, or maybe it was at the end, um, the second this hit the news so-and-so optioned the life rights of, of the, of the, the artist so-and-so optioned IP. the Vanity Fair article so and so that's the other thing like I don't understand this disconnect in the powers that be that make things between either we have to make something that we've already made or we have to find a, a, a salacious story like What about the millions of people who are writing really great scripts? What's wrong with that?
0: Yeah, I think that it's, I think that, yeah, you're right. I think that people only want, they want the extremes. Like either the thing that has never been thought of before or the thing that we will remake some great idea that's been there. We don't like the, the middle area in this world, in this culture, in this planet. We don't like it. We want it.
1: We're going to have to embrace the middle path at some point because not embracing the middle path is exactly why we have a lot of the problems that we have extremes.
0: Like, come on. So yeah. And then, yeah, I just, okay. Yeah. That doesn't sound, it's like good for you that you, but also it makes me think that like, okay, like, you know, she had all these connections at Vanity Fair, right? Probably
1: girl. And and honestly, she wandered into these jobs. Like, yeah, she got, she went to Kenyon call. I'm sure it's no. all about her Kenyon yeah. college connection. She went to Kenyon college. She wrote, she figured out the formatting of somebody's email because she looked at how vanity fair formats their emails, sent it to somebody looking for a job. That person wrote her a like three paragraph response. Oh, and I'm not the right person, but you look great. And you know what? Let me forward your thing. I'm going, who who gets this treatment right. are you I telling that me that I, if i just cold no. emailed somebody so, at vanity fair
0: <laughs> i literally get that treatment one out of every 635 maybe emails and it's a two paragraph saying no but Great cover letter, but you're
1: great. Doesn't
0: lead to anything. And no, and
1: it's not no. But let me refer you to a colleague who's definitely going to give you a job. I mean,
0: it's 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 like she's probably a cute white lady, right? I mean, that's exactly what she is,
1: and it's all and and that's what got to me. There was no point in the story where she said uh, she she was plenty happy to talk about. She was, as they say, she was po mouthing, saying that she didn't come from a lot of money and she's from Tennessee and whatever. She was very happy to say that. But she never sucked
0: about her privilege, and that's why. Of she
1: course, didn't. it's my white, f- um, thin, attractive yeah. privilege yeah. that got me the job—a job at Vanity Fair. You know, getting into these circles where I can go meet somebody who's trying to con right. rich people. You like, can't
0: even meet somebody that's trying to cut the rest, because really, what you would be is like talking with homeless people on the street. Like that's, you know exactly. what I mean? Like go do write a book about that.
2: You know,
1: yeah, no, I'm a hard pass to that. Hard pass. Today on the podcast, we talked to Joel Butler. Joel Butler is a stage manager. He's been working with Blue Man Group for the majority of his career. And he has some great insight to share from the perspective of stage management so please enjoy our interview with joel butler oh one thing i'll just say we were not able to record this the normal way we do and we had to do it on zoom which has lots of limitations audio wise so it may not be up to snuff but it's it's the best we could do so i mean what else can we do but the best we can do please enjoy
2: Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Oh, go <laughs> on.
1: <laughs> Are you in Chicago, Joel?
2: I'm in Boston now.
1: Oh, <gasps> oh how's that? Uh, Boston yeah, it's good.
2: Yeah, it's it's cold today. It's like five degrees. Um, but oh, uh, I've been here since twenty ten. Um okay. uh I was uh in twenty oh nine with the Great Recession, I got laid off at Blue Man in Chicago and then a year later they called me with a position in Boston. Oh,
0: nice! I did yeah. not know there was a blue man, Boston.
2: Yes, yes, yeah. They, they've been here since ninety-five. Holy shit!
0: Little, little I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we
1: jumped right in. So, congratulations, Joel Butler. You survived theater school. <laughs> Yay! And I love to hear from the perspective from from the other side of things because I find we have found that often anybody who is not in acting had a much more narrative experience <laughs> of of school than we did. What about for you? Do you do you have like a kind of a complete memory of theater school or is it sort of patchy for you?
2: No, I have a complete memory of it. Um, uh, I mean, I've been listening to two other episodes on and the, the trauma that the acting students um, had. Like, I was not aware of a lot of it. I mean, I knew there was some stuff, but um, the depths of it with some of the stories was was kind of shocking to me, to be honest.
0: Oh, um, really?
2: Yeah, because um, uh, for, uh, for me at least, um, I started off uh, actually as a theater studies student uh, my first year there. Um, and about like a month into it, I realized, oh, I'm in the wrong program and talked to Frank Wookage about transferring to stage management, um, which is what I was really leaning towards. And so I had to stay in the theater studies program for the first year um, and then went into the production management major in my second year and basically how to redo my first year and my second year and um, wait does that mean
1: theater. that does that mean that you thought you were going to be doing stage management in the theater studies program yes
2: <gasps> yes actually
0: oh, that sucks
2: well well um when i was looking at schools you know i mean i always i always knew i wanted to do theater i always you know i grew up in new jersey my parents took me to see broadway shows all the time you know one of my first memories is seeing peter pan as a kid with sandy duncan and you know oh, and i yeah You know, I remember the feeling like when I saw them fly and I was like, oh, you know, and so that really hooked me. And so, um, you know, and I went to a performing arts high school part-time, you know, for acting and voice. And I knew pretty early on that I didn't want the actor's life, but I wanted to work in theater. And uh, in my high school, uh, the stage manager was actually kind of more like an assistant director than a stage manager. So I actually wasn't a hundred percent clear of what stage management really was until I actually got to college. And so looking at majors and looking at schools, and then when I got to theater school, the theater studies program, looking at the curriculum of it really seemed to align with what I thought stage managers did because the production management uh, major only had one stage management class. Oh. And so I, it didn't really feel like this. And then when I got there, I was like, Oh, I'm in the wrong program. And uh, there was only one other stage manager in the first year class, Kelly Craven. At oh, the yeah. Time. So yeah, uh, Myself and Rodney hunter actually was in the same did the same thing Rodney! So we yeah, so both Rodney and I transferred to production management um for our second year, um, but Frank Wookich was really supportive and let you know both Rodney and I be assistant stage managers for our crew assignments for the second and third quarter of our first year, and then really transitioned fully into the production management major your um, second for a second third fourth year yeah
0: what, what didn't appeal to you about the actor's life? I mean. You You were so smart, by the way. You made
1: such the right decision. You made such
0: the right decision. And we've
1: never (laughs) said on this program to people, if you really like theater, but you're in Mets and Mets on being an actor, please do something else in theater because also you will be employed and you won't if you're an actor.
2: (laughs) Uh, well that's part of that you know it's part of the employment and plus you know i had so many self-esteem issues back then just the constant critiques and you know of of everything i just didn't want to deal with that with my mental state that was <laughs> um, smart and just the and just the uncertainty of it i mean there's a, i knew there was always going to be uncertainty going into theater but i kind of wanted you know i i really thought about okay what what is it a theater that um attracts me and what is it that i really enjoy about theater and you know for me, like, yeah, the applause was great, but what I really enjoyed most was was the process and putting it all together yeah. and putting it on, and that's kind of where I felt stage management was the really uh, a good fit for me. And then in actually getting to do it at the theater school, I just fell in love with it immediately. And um, What
0: about it did you fall in love with? Like, what made, really had a lot of juice for you about it?
2: Oh, well... Um, I love puzzles and, you know, stage management is really just kind of like putting one big puzzle together all the time. Um, you know, and then learning more about, you know, the rules, the, the duties and responsibilities of a stage manager um, was, was really appealing. Frank Woodkitch, actually in, in the stage management class gave me the best piece of advice I've ever gotten about what stage management is. And, and, and I've taken it with me. And what he said was, um, stage managers are in charge of nothing but responsible for everything. Wow. And, and I've really taken that to heart, you know, and um, and the way that I approach stage management that, you know, I'm not I'm not dictating what people are doing. I'm responsible so that they feel supported so that they can go on and put the best show up every night that they can do, you know.
1: Yeah. So one thing that occurs to like a lasting memory of stage managers and stage management at our age was there is something sort of inherently parental about being a stage manager and when you're having to do that with your peers or in many cases probably people who are older than you what was that like
2: uh i mean you know, it was definitely intimidating at times you know you know when i had to deal with some personalities that um were a little bit more grander than others uh <laughs> that's a so nice very, way that's way very nice way of saying it, it. <laughs> <laughs> um you know I never, I personally, I never had a negative, really, really negative experience with anybody at the theater school. You know, there were definitely some people who uh, had some egos about them and, you know, had to um, uh, navigate those waters, uh, especially when I did Macbeth, there were a few in there. Oh, uh,
0: <laughs> you did, you stage managed Susan Lee's Macbeth. Yeah. Do you know, I Did I get just... to pick, I'm sorry, did the directors get to pick their stage managers?
2: No, no. Frank Wookie oh. assigned them. Um, I loved
0: yeah. Frank Wookich, by the way. Yeah,
2: that yeah. He was great.
0: Oh man. But um I I remember you know, it's so interesting. The two productions that I think got, get the most sort of uh, I don't know, weirdness about them, were Peter Pan and Macbeth, both directed by her. And I don't have anything, look, I don't know her from Adam, she said some really weird shit in our classes, and 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 also like, I'm friends with her on Facebook which is odd, I saw that the other day, but anyway per, that show, that Macbeth show was sort of this larger than life situation, it, it was almost like a Broadway play in at the at the merle ruskin right like everyone wanted (laughs) to be in it and i I
2: don't oh man well she had this great she actually had that great concept like with um with the drumming yes the japanese drums right yeah because yeah because for the big fight at the end we had the ensemble circle that that rake stage you know that we used for both that and yellow boat and yeah um and and it just you know it's just really primal you know Little did I know that drums would be a huge part of my life at that time. But yes, um, oh
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice segue, nice segue. Tell everybody what you're talking about. Yeah, well,
2: just, yeah. So now you know because I worked for Blue Man for 20 plus years now. So um, just drumming has just kind of, ironically, because I never cared too licks about drumming, you know, that it's just uh, percussion. Now it's your whole life. Part. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. So yeah. tell
1: us, the, tell us your Blue Man story. How did you get How, that job? Yeah.
2: Oh well, I was. Uh, So after college, uh, you know, I did the day job thing, but I actually worked at the theater school for a year as the production coordinator. Um, That little office right in the front there. uh, Yes! I worked there for a year and then did like a day job, did some crew at the Goodman Theater and made my way to About Face Theater, uh, which is the small uh, LGBT company in Chicago. And then kind of through them and other people, someone's like, oh, hey, Blue Man's looking for a stage manager. And so uh, I applied. Uh, and luckily got it i did apply with blue man when they first opened uh in 97 in chicago but they were like oh you're just out of college go get some more experience so so i did that and then um
0: so i have a question i have a question did you feel when when you left the theater school um as a stage manager did you feel like equipped to be a stage manager
2: i did um that's
0: fucking fantastic
2: well because the you know another thing that, you know, the Frank Wilkins said, he actually gets some really great advice was, you know, at least for the stage management department and maybe all the technical side of things is the school will give to you what you put into it, you know, Um, you know, and for us, the majority of our education was actually doing it and doing the shows, you know, and, you know, uh, I actually just got done working at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley for the fall semester being one of their stage managers and just getting to see how another conservatory does things like, we were spoiled at the park. Oh! You know, we were, I mean, having that Merle Reskin stage, like, and, have, and being able to do shows in a Broadway house, and, you know, like, we were spoiled. Oh,
0: that's so uh, good to know. You know. It gives me a new perspective. Okay, okay. And you,
2: know, and, and, you know, and even hearing the stories about, oh, having to do shows in classrooms, like, there are some of their students, you know, they don't have a guarantee of being in production. So, you know, at least when we went there, you know, oh. all the acting students had a guarantee that they were going to do shows and gain experience, you know. Um, another like
0: some, like some places don't do, you're not guaranteed to be in a show at all. Yeah,
2: because Holy... they only do like two or three shows a, a quarter. Oh, or a semester, God. You know?
0: Can you imagine that? You graduate, you've never been in a goddamn play? Oh, fuck.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, also, another like another great thing about it, you know, is uh, that we did multiple weekends of shows. Yeah. Uh, versus just one, like Berkeley. they only did one weekend of shows which, you know, it's just, which is, was great that we actually get to do it. But, you know, a big part of um, the training for actors is maintaining a show and them not really getting that experience. So like yeah. t- telling them we did kids shows for three months, you know, three times a week, they're like, that's insane. And, right. uh, you know, so. oh, uh, well, that's just good to... to
0: know. This is helping me get like a different perspective. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, I know, I don't think we ever heard that before that like, can you well, actually, we we did hear it. that
1: from the person who went to Northwestern that she never got cast the entire right. time she was there. So yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. We were spoiled in some ways. So, um, what is your connection, if if you have any at all, to uh, or ha- over the years to people who are studying stage management now? Do you ever mentor?
2: Um, the only mentoring I've really done is just having people shadow me at Blue Man. Um, uh, blue man is such a weird own universe in the theater world um you know I, I, I did find myself get a little pigeonholed in that uh you know when i first found myself out of work in 09 um uh. but well because uh, you know, some of the bigger theaters were just, were just like oh you're blue man you're too small for us and the smaller theaters were like oh you're blue man you're too big for us and it's just like i just wanted i just want to do theater you know so um
0: And why did you, did you stay with Blue Man? It must have actually, what did it give you? Like, obviously it was steady work. They probably paid well, right? But Mm -hmm. what did you stay there? What did you love? What do you love about it? Like, what it's, what do you love about it?
2: Well, one of the best things about Blue Man uh, is that the show is different every night, you know, because, you know, it's a rotating cast and band. um, And there are some moments in the show that are slightly improv um, and each show dip- is different depending on the audience and the energy of the audience and the relationship between the bloomin' and the band. Um, and uh, and the show has been updated over the years as well. So, you know, while at times it did get a little stagnant, there was always enough in there to keep it fresh and to keep it um, exciting. Yeah. Um, and plus, I also got some amazing travel opportunities. I've traveled all over the world with really. Them. Yeah, I've gone to, uh, it, right before uh, COVID, actually, uh, in 2020, I was in China for a month and a half. Um, and I was in, uh, did the show in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, for a month, which was really exciting. Um, one of the best things that I got to do with Blue Man was we had a show on Norwegian Cruise Lines. And I was the uh, cast crossover stage manager, which meant, uh, so the, 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 the cast changed out every four months. And so the, when a new cast would go in and an old cast would leave, I would go with them for a week and kind of uh, onboard them onto the ship, run the rehearsals, get them into the show. Literally, and so, <laughs> yeah, and so get, I, bored, yeah. And so, and I would get, you know, I would get to cruise the Mediterranean for a week or the Caribbean for a week and get paid. And it was great. You know, so. Um, That's amazing. I did, I did that for like four years, you know, and. You know, got, to, got to go to um, everywhere in, you know, Rome and Barcelona and. Uh, Palma so, uh, it's amazing. And so, so just,
0: yeah, you that sounds like a fucking dream. And also it sounds hard. <laughs> the other thing that I want to say is, like, when I... The, my biggest sort of um, learning experience with a stage manager, this is good. This is, like, ask a stage manager. So I didn't realize that stage managers ran rehearsals for understudies. Mm-hmm. It's fucking crazy. You have to be a director. So, like, yeah. you... I, I, I don't think people know that. So when I was understudying at the Red, uh, at a Red Orchid, um, Stephanie Heller was our stage manager and um, she ran, she had to be a director, a stage manager, a props person. It was crazy. So I don't think people know exactly the amount of shit that stage managers do and the amount of like, um emotional labor that's involved because we had people that didn't know what the fuck they were doing as understudies (laughs) and she would have to teach them how to Mm -hmm. do crazy, crazy. Yeah. I mean,
2: you know, another analogy of stage management is, you know, we're just spinning plates and just trying to keep all the plates spinning at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why it's so important that stage managers have a good relationship with directors and, and really pay attention in those blocking sessions and rehearsal sessions because it's our responsibility to communicate the director's vision to the understudies. Um, once we're open. Yeah.
0: I mean, it was crazy how much directing she gave me, how much mm-hmm. direction and good direction. It wasn't like she was like, ah, she like knew, with, knew the play inside and out. So anyway, I guess what I'm, I also <laughs> want to ask is how, do you think that there's a certain amount of psychological awareness that you need as a stage manager to deal with people? Yeah. Right? Oh yeah,
2: definitely. Oh, definitely. I do wish, um, that, uh part of the curriculum was more like uh sociology classes psychology classes um those personnel management type classes because that is a huge part of stage management especially on a long-running show on a shorter show on like a contract show where you're just doing it for four or five weeks there are some things that you might like okay we're just here for a few weeks let's let it slide but you know doing an open-ended show that runs for 20 years and you have interpersonal conflict and dealing with this stuff, you really need to nip that in the bud as quickly as possible. Joel,
0: I have seen some crazy ass shit go on and the stage manager had to like, this guy in, in, I just have to tell you in an understudy rehearsal, this guy got so mad that he smashed a glass and I was so triggered. I thought I, I was like, what the fuck is happening? And then our stage manager stepped in and was brilliant. But like, what, how did you learn that shit? Like, how do you approach that shit?
2: It's just, just by doing it, you know, you, you just kind of got to suck it up and do it, um, you know, when those hard things come uh, and, you know, rehearsal rooms get tense because that, that happens, you know. Um, I mean, that happened at the theater school, too, a few times. too. So um, And that was hard, you know, as a student, you know, in dealing with faculty directors and who might get a little um, feisty. Uh, you're so you know,
0: you're so diplomatic. They yeah. got fucking butt-ass crazy, is what they got. What? Do, how do you approach it? Like, what's your philosophy if something's going bonkers? What do you do? How do you? What do you say to yourself? You're like, I just have to do it, or like, how? how... Yeah,
2: you, what you have to do, you have to you know, depending on the situation, de-escalate the such situations. You know, um, if it's real, if it's about to come to blows, you know, separate people. If it's if it's just kind of like awkwardness, you know, see how long you can ride it until you can or, you know, take a break in a rehearsal room, like, hey, let's just take a break right now, you know, and go talk to people. It's really just about communication. And, um, you know, nine times out of 10, when people have a a problem in a, you know, in a rehearsal room uh, or they react to something negatively, it's nine times out of 10, not because of what just happened. It's because of other- Yeah,
1: circumstances. Yeah, like I'm wondering, for example, when you're doing something on the road, this, this seems to me a really ripe opportunity for there to be problems. People are in a foreign land. They don't, you know, they're any, even if they weren't having to remount, essentially the show in a new space is there's always some getting used to it. So do you find the abroad part is a little bit more challenging in terms of the human resources side of things and people feeling out of sorts
2: or tense? Well, most of the stuff that I've done abroad that was kind of like sit down touring stuff um, was in such, you know, far places that the the culture shock of it all was kind of felt by everybody, which actually bonded everybody a little bit more, Um, you know, uh, you know, like being in uh, Langshao, China for a week, which is, you know, this city in the middle of China where there's nothing around there and there's nothing to do in there, you know, you you, you kind of become a fast family. And so um again it's again the same thing when things come up you know you rely on your company management Uh uh-oh show related um would i would i step in at that point on a touring situation are you
1: expected to manage every problem like that on your own at what point do you have to bring it to somebody else
2: I mean, it depends on the production. Like here at Blue Man, we are we are a management team, you know, it's between stage management and company management, and um, you know, company management's are my supervisors. So, and then I supervise uh, crew performers. So it, it's, a, it's a it's conversations about about those things about disciplinary thing uh, actions, and it just depends on the company and the company's policies uh, of how that goes. Um, it's a little it's more corporate, you know, like than just right, theater. Right. So well,
0: I, mean. <laughs> I also feel like like. In union versus non-union shows, okay, so like in storefront theater, non-union shows, crazy shit would go on, like that would never be allowed at a union. you know. I think the union is important for the for actually for like mental health and physical safety boundaries in theater because I feel like theater can get so wild and people don't. Um, uh, people use it as a as a as a way of like working through shit, which is not supposed to be. But like at least with a union situation, there's like rules, right? It's like oh no no, you can't just start doing. But non union, did you ever? You went union really fast, right? Because when you
2: no, Blue Man's not union actually. Uh, what? I mean, I, yeah, no, Blue Man's not union. Uh, uh, well, because when Blue Man first opened, they invited Equity, and Equity's like, you don't talk, we don't want you. <laughs> so they didn't they, they didn't go union. Uh, Crew wise only the Vegas show is unionized. Um, The rest of it is not. But Blue Man's been always really good about uh, taking care of their employees. So, um, you know, the goal with that was always to to make them not want to unionize because, you know, so um, So they
0: would save money. Yeah. yeah, but, but
2: also you know, so
0: that if you're treated well enough, you won't need a union. Is that is yeah. also the underlying thing, right? right?
2: Right, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm equity myself. You know, I don't need, you know, so uh, I'm totally pro union. And uh, in the situations where I have worked union, like it, the rules are great; they're there for a reason. And, yeah, and you know all this new conversation about uh, in the industry of you know getting rid of. 10s out of twelve and work-life balance is wonderful and I support it 100% and I hope that we're all able to to find that way forward so that we're not all killing ourselves to produce art. Especially
1: 10 out of 12. 10 out of 12 should have been abolished a long time ago. So I'm on theater Twitter and I you know a couple weeks ago there was a lot of talk about Understudies and swings and um All right. But we never get to really hear about what are the kind of collective concern, or I maybe because I'm not on stage management Twitter, we never get to hear I don't feel like I ever get to hear about the collective concerns of people who aren't actors or you know, or I mean actors, understudies are actors too what are kind of some of the big conversations? I know, I know you're not on Broadway right now, but like, what are some of the big conversations about the stage management world in American theater?
2: Wow. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, well, you I mean, could do, do it. I can do it. Well, I mean, I've, like I said, my world's pretty much been blue man a lot. So, um, you know, when I was a kid, Broadway was a dream, but I just don't think that's in the cards anymore, which is totally fine. Cause you know, what I've done is is great on its own so um but what i think is again is the work-life balance thing you know work-life balance for stage managers has always been difficult uh because you know we're supposed to be the first to first to be there last to leave you know we're responsible like i said we are responsible for everything um you know uh and you know i know i would work 60 hour 70 hour weeks during a tech process uh just to to get it all done and to, you know, yeah. and to be there for everybody else. And, um, you know, like, so at Berkeley, you know, I, when I was stage managing, I, we did head over heels, which was a very fun musical yeah. musical, but the, the tech process was a little uh, stressful, you know, it was, uh, it, we ran into some difficulties, you know, with, with just everything going on right now. And, uh, you know, I worked about a 65 hour week in that tech week. And. The one I, but the thing was, it was also my first show back. You know, uh, post COVID that I had done, and while it was frustrating and stressful, at the same time I was like, I'm having the best time of my fucking life right now. You know, like I'm I'm having a great time. I'm putting on art. I'm working with some really talented kids. Those students at that school really are so, so talented, um, and uh, and I was just having the best time, and just that feeling of putting on theater and like and just being a part of that process of theater. That's what sustains me. You know, and you know if because everything else was really nice, it was a positive experience. In other experiences, I think working 65 hours could be really hor- horrible too, but.
1: Yeah, but know, I, I love to hear that. I love to hear that because I, I guess I'd never really put much thought into the, the excitement or the feeling of artist. I mean, I don't know if you would call it artistic, but I guess it is artistic satisfaction that people get in you know in all the roles in theater. Mm. Um, From putting on a show, right? That's what we really like. We really like putting on a show.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, stage management is an art form, you know. I and and I I will advocate that about the art of stage management until the day I die. You know. Oh, good. Say more about that. Yeah. Well, well, because you know, uh, well, paperwork is boring to some and needs to look pretty. That's you know, that's you know, I I like I like my clip art. I like making pretty (laughs) borders and stuff. You know. Yes. But but then once you get to the actual show running and calling a show and. The ability to call a, a show properly um, and be in sync with the performers is important you know, and that's one skill I really learned at Blue Man is I have to really be in sync with the performers and the blue men. To, to hit moments, to hit beats, to hit transitions. Yeah. And, and uh, even in regular plays or musicals where there isn't much improv, you still have to be in tune with everybody. You know, you have to be on the beat with the conductor. You have to be, you know, with the actor who's singing that song who might want to take an extra breath. And so, you know, yeah, and you know, there, there is an art form to it. And sometimes I feel that might get a little pushed to the wayside and talk right. about stage management because calling isn't just you know, lights go, you know, you have to be in the moment, just like an actor, you have to, you know, you know, I might hold a light cue a second or two longer, depending on if that scene really rocked tonight, or take it quicker because it failed tonight, right, you know, right. like, so, you know, that, that's what I, when I talk about the art of stage management, you know, it's really more, you know, it's, it's a little more focused on the calling side of things. Um, yeah, but the paperwork side piece was pretty too. <laughs>
1: the the you have it's a lot of active listening, which is exactly what it is to be an actor. I one time was hearing somebody on some podcast talking about um calling Starlight Express, mm. which you know, people like broke their legs and stuff in that show. For people who don't know, it's it's a musical that everybody's on roller skates. And so that I think actually in that show is where they they pioneered something about. The, those Q lights. I think that's where, I think that's where Q lights started was that Starlight Express. I, I could be making that up. Oh, right. I, I don't know. Yeah.
2: The, the red, red lights, ones. the red yeah. light. Yeah.
1: The yeah, The red yeah. lights keep QB Blum. Okay. But I wanted to get back to this thing that you said in the beginning that you didn't have any idea. Sorry, my dog is barking back. Here. You didn't have any idea about the the drama. You didn't experience as much like storm and drong whatever in, in your side of things. And you didn't really know about that from the actors. I guess that kind of surprises me because we all, you know, spent so much time together. I, it doesn't surprise me that there wasn't as much drama in your program because of the nature of the work. But I guess it surprises me that you. So, what what's an example of something that surprised you to, to hear about?
2: Well, I guess it was just some of the, you know, borderline abuse. You know, like from some of the acting teachers, especially like in the first year. Some of those stories, I was just like, wow, that's harsh. You know. And uh, like I always, I knew that there was, you know, that the acting teachers there, you know, really went at you all. Um, but just a couple of the smaller stories, I was just like, wow, that's that's intense, you know. Yeah. Like, and just um, you know, like listening to Jen Cober's, uh her 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 one, like a few things that she was saying. Some of the professors would talk to her. I'm just like, that's just not right, you know. Right. And, you know, and 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 the awkwardness, you know, some of the inappropriateness of things, you know, in our time at the theater school, um, you know. Like like for colored girls, you know, like doing that show with only three African-American actresses in the casting pool, not the best choice, you know? Yeah. Um, and things like that. Uh, and doing Guns, do you remember that show, Guns, the children's musical, about that the characters were seven guns? Oh my God, I it, forgot about that. And it was a musical and... <laughs> That's like fucking shoot, right. And they shoot the human at the end of the of the musical. Are you fucking? Show. It was a kid show. Oh, yeah. fuck! Did you stage manage that show? No, no, no. Oh, I did. Okay. I did. Uh, no, I did. Uh, Pipe dream. success, and Yellow boat. Did you do Yellow Boat? No, no Kelly didn't. Craven. Kelly oh, Craven right. did, did Yellow Boat. Oh, oh wow. Pipe Dream. That
1: was my favorite. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about that. Pipe Dream.
2: Pipe Dream is, is still one of my favorite shows I've ever done. It's, it's still it's still actually the most difficult show I've ever called in my career because it was like a four, you know 45 minutes long, but there were over 400 cues in it, and so because um, because of David Swayze's amazing sets and Scott Fowley's amazing lighting and and all that. So uh, Pipe Dream I hold in my heart, like because it's the first show I ever stage managed, really truly as well too, and um and it was just such an amazing experience because it was over winter break that we rehearsed so we were all kind of in this rehearsal bubble and rick murphy was rick murphy at that time you know and, and you know the, the cast you know the, the four of them uh jen and colleen and mike dunn and and johnny you know we all just formed this little family and it was just super great and like it's one of the best experiences I, i've ever had still to this day it, it's wow so, i love that um,
1: Okay, so we love to hear about disasters. Do you have any disaster stories? <laughs> you don't have to
0: name names. So you can if you want. But like your because I I one of my things is like I've recently in my in my middle age years developed uh, stage fright. So like mm. do you have stage fright disasters or someone peeing on stage or barfing? I love to peeing on stage. <laughs> I don't think that happens, does it? Peeing? Someone must have pee. Oh, it must
2: have. I mean, I've, you know, I am, knock on wood, I have been fortunate that very few things have gone wrong in my show. Holy shit. I, I, especially Blue Man, like, half the time, the crazy stuff will happen to other people, and I'm just like, well, I don't to really have that fun, you know? Like, you know, that's why okay. you do it here. All right, all gonna,
0: nobody I mean, has I'm, ever gone up at, at Blue Man, like, fucked and they it. i don't have lines. No, but, like, I mean, like doesn't know what to do next, or, like, has a panic attack. Like, that's my thing, is, like.
2: No, I mean, I haven't, I mean, it's possible. I haven't had a show like Oh, that. shit. These people are good. The one thing that did happen once was uh, during a video transition, a blue man had uh, some uh, stomach issues and needed to run to the bathroom.
0: Diarrhea is what you're saying. Let's just call it it whatever.
2: Diarrhea. Had to run to the bathroom, quickly get out of his whole costume, and then uh, come back on stage. Now, the point in the show was the the drum bone piece, you know, with the sliding uh, PVC Mm -hmm. pipe. and so there's three roles, right, center, and left. Um, the, the Please Blue tell Man, me
0: it was Jeff Brown. Was it somehow it, it Jeff Brown? Okay.
2: It was I'm not. You know, Jeff Brown and I have only ever done one Blue Man show together. That's in, crazy. The entire time. Right. Um, uh, but so, yeah. So the person who had the, the diarrhea, he only knew two of the roles, right and left. But... The third person, the third blue man that comes in during the piece is the center blue man. And because he went to the bathroom, he uh, had to come in the center blue man and he did not know the piece at all. Oh, so shit. that was uh, quite hilarious of the other two blue men, like very broadly motioning and moving to get him to, to play the instrument correctly. Uh, and that was a very amusing story. Everyone, got, I mean, got a huge uh, kick out of that and is the
0: audience the... none the wiser like crazy
1: crazy so crazy honestly like every mistake that actors make or 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 anybody makes when they're calling a show whatever we feel that it was so glaring and so obvious I mean I remember being in shows probably in high school where you know remember <laughs> I remember doing noises off which is already a very convoluted play and and just completely switching sections around and my mom <laughs> had gone to every performance i get off stage and I'm like can you believe it and she's like what it was great she had no idea and she'd seen the show three times before so it's just one of those things
2: i saw i went and saw uh one job i had gave us chris's bonus to going to see joseph and the amazing technicolor and so we went and at the end of act one, all of a sudden, like, I notice all the lights go out and the work lights come on, like, for the big end, for Go, 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 Joseph at the end or whatever. And looking, at, you know, and I all the tech people, like, running around, I'm like, ooh, something's <laughs> going on, what's going on, right? And then during an admission, like, I'm talking to all my coworkers, like, oh, my God, did you notice that? And they're like, what? I was like, you didn't notice all the lights go out? And then all, oh, like. And these look- were
0: people in the theater, right? Like, these are I mean, theater no, folks.
2: Oh. No, 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 they weren't theater folks. But, oh. it just, but still, it was just like. Really? Like, you didn't notice that at right. all?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I love the story. I mean, we interviewed Joan Montaigne who said that, like, he went up at, in Glengarry Gary, Glen Ross, like, went up at the opening night, na- or opening night, or, opening like, night opening, on opening night on Broadway, wow. the dude dropped pages, and then, yes. and was uh, doing a monologue and then they he just like basically like made some shit up and they dropped the curtain <laughs> and then he wasn't gonna go back on basically and then like oh Mammoth and Lindsay Krause came to him and said you have to like and then he won the award, the Tony or whatever. But the point is like it is so anything can happen. Like I'm just thinking of like like weird shit. Like when I was again at, at an understudy at Red Orchid, we were I was in the audience and someone and I was watching a show and it wasn't an actor, but someone in the audience was high on drugs or like painkillers and began to snore and like convulse. And I watched the stage manager watching me watching and we were both like, what do we do? This person was like, it was crazy. And it's a small house. And I got up as the understudy. I got up and like went over and she like thanked me for it later. But the person was high on drugs. I mean, like it was yeah. crazy. Like shit goes on. You can't control an audience.
2: Mm-hmm. Who's to, I
0: mean, is it somebody's job
1: to to watch the audience?
2: Yeah, house, house management and house staff uh, oh. normally. does. That. I don't know I mean, where the house yeah. I don't think we I had. Mean, we used to have 10 o'clock shows at Blue Man's that back in the day that got really rowdy um you know yeah. and so and we used to have all that paper in the show too um i don't know if you like in the finale oh and we, oh yeah we, we've caught people having sex during finale you know like yeah it's insane
0: that's fantastic. Wow. I love wow. it.
2: No, that was back in the day. That was back in the day. But <laughs> What
1: do you think goes on the mind of somebody who chooses that opportunity to have, I mean, what's alcohol. Is that? Is that alcohol? Is that a, alcohol. Okay. And drugs. And drugs. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> How could I have forgotten? Yeah. Okay, so you didn't have maybe some of the same... Um, problems or, or or traumas that the actors did but you, you were going through college and mm-hmm. and of course this show is about surviving and so what were some challenging moments that you might have had personally or or with the program or interpersonal with your friends mm-hmm. that and how did you how did you survive how did you cope
2: yeah um, well, you know, one of the big things for me was, you know, coming to terms with my sexuality, realizing I was gay, you know, um, in, you know, my first year and, uh, and, um, you know, one thing that I really, when I think about the theater school, I, one thing I think about is the community that we all formed there, you know, like I might not talk to a lot of those, you know, to, to you and to all those people, but I, I still consider you all family in a way, you know, like we all went through something that is specific to us and, uh, and now it's gone because you know they're in that lovely new building. You know, I know. You know. Um, you know, but you know, like I remember the four square tournaments out front. Oh there, four foursquare!
0: Uh, you know who was fucking good at that? Was fucking Alex Scooby and Logie. Yes, yes, yeah, and Taint, those yeah. Those motherfuckers. Oh my god.
2: You know, like yeah. I love those, you know, remember the four square tournaments. I remember um like uh I can't remember if it was our third year or fourth year. Where I think it was the MFA directors did a bunch of one acts in the lo- in the lobby there, you know, like the one with the monkeys typing Hamlet. And I just remember like everybody was like was all around and just like watching them and laughing and just having a great time and and um, and the God Squad parties and um, all the other parties. And um, I just remembered, you know, I just remember the community that we had, and that's that's kind of what I always think back on, you know, and um how were uh, you
0: able to who supported you like how did you how were you able to when you came you know came to terms with being gay like did you feel yeah. supported at the theater school and did it help I did. okay
2: I, I did um uh you know my first year uh there there were these two uh slightly older people in the theater studies program uh mark john i think his name was oh and, um, yeah
0: and then
2: and then elizabeth i can't remember the last names but both of them were 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 really really wonderful people and really great friends at the time and really kind of you know just helped me like listen to me and talk through it and then my second year um, Jeffrey Hoffman who was a MFA actor yeah he worked their front desk like he 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 more than anybody else really uh you know he was one of the first you know out and proud gay men that you know I'd seen and just really uh allowed me to to see what that was like and just to be okay and just it is and and so it was it was really through like that part of my second year where i really uh accepted myself fully and uh, it's just just by getting to know people who i hadn't known and listening to experiences that i hadn't experienced before and while while we were a very uh, white community at the time we were still diverse in other ways too um that
0: um, yeah where you know, are you
2: from new jersey
0: Oh, you're from Jersey. Okay. And so did you, was your family supportive of you when you came out?
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it took, it took some time. I didn't come out to them until my senior year, uh, right. fourth, fourth year of college. Um, you know, cause you know, even though I had a living boyfriend at the time, you know, the, um, it was, you know, um, uh,
1: that's when I came out hide you know? it anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like my coming out story is really funny. So, uh, it was i was i went home for my friend's college graduation in may of 97 yes and uh when i would go home my mom and i would just sit at the coffee or at the kitchen table smoke cigarettes talk and whatnot and we're just sitting there and she's you know she's like can i ask you something and i was like yeah she's like are you gay and i was like yes and she's like i love you don't tell your father like those, those are literally the first words out of my mouth yeah it's like tell you. so my mom
0: too don't,
2: don't tell your father and then and then i you know and then after we're done talking i run and i call my boyfriend I'm like oh my god i just came out to my mom and he's like oh that's great and he's like i can tell your dad it's like no no gosh no i can't and then my dad comes home that night and we're all sitting in the kitchen and he's like joel can i ask you something and i was like yeah he's like are you gay and like the floodworks opened up i was like i can't tell you you know just because you know just the father something yeah. and and then he was just like listen it doesn't matter i love you You're always my son. Give me a hug. And uh, and honestly, it was the best thing that ever happened because it just opened up our relationship. And uh, I love Love my dad. I love my dad more than anything. And uh, That's so So. sweet.
1: When you were talking about the other people, Jeffrey Hoffman and other people, by the way, we have to get Jeffrey Hoffman. He's such a nice guy. Are you still in Um, touch with Jeffrey Hoffman at
0: all?
2: Oh, just Facebook friends.
1: Friends But like him and
2: and like Adam Mathias as well. You know, just like he's, 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 he's gay men who were just living themselves in their authentic. Oh, Adam was fucking
0: authentic. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah, He used to celebrate
0: coming out day.
1: But anyway, when you talked about that, it just, it made me think, we always talk about representation in terms of how it's it's media, but we don't, I I never really think about representation just in your community and people that you know. And I mean, because you probably knew that you were gay before your first year of theater school, (laughs) but you probably didn't have so many people, you know, that you felt like, because I think it it seems like it must be a community that you, you have to see the community that you can then join.
0: Yeah,
1: And if you don't see that community, then it must feel unsafe.
2: Well, yeah, I know it's the early 90s too, which is, you know, it's like, you know, it's a very different time than it is now, you know. Coming out in high school was just, you just didn't do that. You know? And, I know uh, now
0: it's like with glee and everything. It's like yeah. Kurt Hummel, you know, that whole yeah. situation. Like people are really, we, you know, we did, we, some of us did the hard work back mm-hmm. then. Oh, yeah. I, I was the- talking
1: to my son the other day and he goes, mom did you know that like in the 50s gay people could not and I go in the 50s what are you talking (laughs) about dude it was like 10 years ago practically Mm -hmm. I mean it really hasn't even been very long at all and 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 to think to think that you were because you did theater in high school right Mm -hmm. to think that you were a theater kid in high school on the east coast and you still didn't feel like you know for you to be who you were
2: no, I, and I did, you know, and I did the the thing that a lot of us did back then. Was like, oh, I'm bisexual, you know, before sure. the, you know, before gay, just to test the waters, you know, sure. like how is everybody going to react to this? And, um, yeah. and then like six months later, like, oh, no, I'm just gay, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just, just,
0: were you just uh, were you a good actor and singer? Would you say you were good?
2: I was all right. I mean, I I, I don't think I was great by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I mean, singing, I I made all short chorus one year, so or one year, two years, I guess. So that was five. I did choir. I mean, I did act once at the theater school. Um, really? Uh, I what? Did. It was? just, It was a friend of mine in theater studies program did uh, a Fathers and Sons or something, and okay. I was the father in that. It was the most nerve-wracking experience of my life because, you know, doing it in this classroom with, like, all these acting students. And yes. Acting students, like, here I am, a stage manager, you know, student, acting. Let me tell you something. You were
0: probably better than all of us combined. <laughs> like, I'm not even... Probably...
2: Yeah, uh, it was, it was so, so you
0: you you didn't apply to schools as an actor at all. No, no, no schools. Okay, even not, though you acted in high school. Okay, you knew. Did you apply to other schools for theater studies?
2: Well, I who did I apply for? So um, I applied to Carnegie Mellon as a directing major because um, I thought, oh, maybe I want to directing. But uh, I'm glad that didn't work out. I don't want to be a director. <laughs> um, and uh, also applied to Hofstra. That was like my state school. Oh yeah. So, so, was Hofstra. Um, My parents really wanted me to apply to Rutgers being in New Uh Jersey, but I did not apply to one state school in New Jersey. I wanted to get out of Jersey. Get the
0: hell out of Jersey. Um,
2: And I used to have family in Chicago. Uh, So I'd known Chicago. And uh, so when I got the brochure for DePaul and my acting teacher at the time was like, oh, that's a really great school. Because at the time we were like the number three uh it was like number school.
0: two or three yeah
2: yeah and the nation yeah. so that the, you know the prestige of so of weird going, going to that you know school uh was great and i think maybe because you know did the theater studies program at that time they were just accepting almost anybody for that program so um wait can we say
1: for a second that it that actually these rankings were all bullshit because oh, yeah, sh- totally. sh- right because I remember that too I remember being so confused I got into DePaul I went and I told my drama teacher she was so excited and then, and then a month later she said you're saying DePaul but it's DePaul and I said no it's DePaul it's that's a different school and she goes oh I've never heard of that school and of course my heart sank but honestly, I'm sure it's a much better school now than it was then. And it's not even in the rankings anymore. So what, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, what is the criteria for those?
2: Oh, I, I have no idea. No idea. I don't even know where it is in the rankings anymore. But um,
1: it's not but even it's, in the top 25, I don't think.
2: I just remember the time the, you know, the, the messaging from the the school was was like we're one of the top theater schools in the right right
0: yeah and and i was just gonna say and you know like hearing you talk about the resources that we did have at the theater school even in that crap hole building and then that theater you know the theater at the end the merle ruskin which was not a crap hole i thought was really beautiful um it's making me think like oh maybe maybe it wasn't wasn't so bad. Like, I, not that I always go around saying it was so bad, but I just don't think, I think I didn't uh, have a broader view. It helps to have a broader view of mm-hmm. like our education as undergrads compared to like other schools, which. Yeah. You know, sounds like they never, eat. I mean, at least we got a chance to freaking perform. Can you imagine graduating from a fucking theater school and having never done a play like on a stage? Oh, my God. Oh, that'd be, terrible. Terrible, that'd be Terrible. 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 So terrible. anyway, what were you going to say, Beans?
1: Oh uh, No, I, I I was actually just going to say we are uh, want to be respectful of your time. We're going to have yeah. to wrap up unless there was anything that you wanted to make sure to tell us about.
2: There was one thing uh, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, was auditions.
1: Oh, because, yeah, please!
2: Just because, um, for some reason, stage, management, stage managers were part of audition process. That's right! Through, through, okay. through part of it. And one thing, when you were, when I was listening to a podcast that you were talking about that just made me laugh was, us stage managers would purposely sit in our office knowing that all the actors were stewing in the lobby, waiting for those callback lists, and we would per- purposely walk through the stage management office across the street to the computer lab just to rally all up. just
0: So that we knew it was like happening, like there was discussions uh, happening? Or well, just... every,
2: every time we would open the door, like everybody in the lobby is like, oh, they're pushing the list. And so we'd purposely like go across the street. Fantastic. And, and we did that. We would do that a couple of times just to, just to mess with y'all and that that popped in my head i just thought that was a funny that's trick. fantastic
0: and you know what serves you. us right like come on like go do something like <laughs> what the fuck? The, the, mod-
1: the modern version of the cast list is when i refresh our downloads to see <laughs> <the> downloads.
0: <laughs> for me it's it's refreshing my email after i've sent a query letter or a script to someone it's like <laughs> it's so dumb it doesn't there's even... always
1: a cast list somewhere there's always a cast... and everything yeah. is an audition
0: right <laughs> yeah. it's like uh, right. Um,
1: If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.